Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, folks, and thanks for tuning in to AOA. We've got a lot coming on today's show. We'll be speaking first with Travis Cushman here in just a moment. He's a member of the Senior Counsel at American Farm Bureau Federation. Supreme Court just agreed to hear a challenge to California's Proposition 12. Travis will bring us up to speed on what that means longer term. Then we're going to speak with Danielle Quist. She's the Vice President of Regulatory Affairs with the International Dairy Foods Association. And uh, there are some concerns developing broadly about that SEC climate disclosure rule that was rolled out last Monday. Danielle will fill us in on what that means broadly and what it means specifically for companies that operate in the agriculture space. And then in segment three, folks, we have volatile markets continuing as of now. Yet today's soybeans rally has wiped out all of yesterday's decline. USDA reports coming out tomorrow. Arlen Suderman will join me in segment three with a look ahead as to what to expect as this week rolls on. And then finally, at the end of the show, we're going to talk to Brian Schwartz from Cenex about getting that farm machinery tuned up for planting season. But let's talk first with Proposition 12. Joining me on the show, as I mentioned, Travis Cushman, Senior Counsel for Public Policy at the American Farm Bureau Federation. Travis, Supreme Court has agreed to hear your challenge, American Farm Bureau and National Pork Producers Council's challenge to Proposition 12. What does that mean? What's the current status of Prop 12 in California? Thanks, Mike. So Prop 12 went into effect January 1st of this year, but it was almost immediately stopped uh, temporarily because there's another lawsuit uh, challenging it in the state court. Um, and the basis for that was saying, you know, Prop 12 was supposed to have some regs that went into place two and a half years ago. Uh, it turns out the Prop 12 wasn't written in such a way that not only was it not very friendly for farmers, but it wasn't very friendly for the regulators either. They were unable to come out with any regulations, uh, even though they were due two and a half years ago. So a, a state court in California temporarily blocked Prop 12 from going into effect until six months after those uh, regs come into place. So at least the time being, it's, it's temporarily paused while our lawsuit continues. And your lawsuit is continuing. That's big news, Travis, for the Supreme Court to agree to hear it. That, that doesn't happen to too many cases that are presented to that body, does it? That's exactly right. I mean, it's a dream of every lawyer to get a case accepted before the Supreme Court. They take less than 1% of cases, which means that there are many, many great, great cases that are put together that the Supreme Court simply doesn't have time to take. They take around 80 or so cases a year. Many of those cases are you know, federal-type cases they have to take anyway. So they have very little room on their docket for, for various challenges, even if they're pretty good ones. So it's very exciting that, that they've looked at our case and, and certainly think that, that it's, it's worth hearing amongst the limited time they have. Well, let's talk specifically about the American Farm Bureau Federation and the National Pork Producers Council's case. There have been a lot of legal challenges brought against Proposition 12, Travis, oftentimes using the Commerce Clause and saying this is an impediment to nationwide commerce. And those have have not always been picked up by courts. What difference does your case bring that might have the court intrigued to hear this case uh, later on this year? What we approached was a little bit different than other folks have. And I think we did a good job explaining uh, the ramifications this, this has on farms across the country. And the fact that this is really a law that is, you have uh, you know, people in California regulating farmers in Iowa, in North Carolina, you know, across the country, where that is it's a pretty un- unusual situation of circumstances. And, and you can kind of draw some similar parallels. It's kind of like, you know, you think it's much broader than agriculture. Outside of agriculture, it's kind of similar to if California is requiring that any goods go under state be produced with their minimum wage labor, right, or being produced by union labor, certain kinds of other uh, processes, which, you know, which is essentially controlling another state's uh, regulations. So I, I think we've done a good job of laying that out. Um, and I think, you know, we're also we're sympathetic, right? You know, I think folks realize that farmers and ranchers know what's best for animals, and here you have folks that, that are not farmers, are not veterinarians, telling farmers what is in, in their animals' interests. 
Yeah, and that is one of the concerns I've heard brought up repeatedly by pork production groups across the country is that these rules and regs, Travis, weren't necessarily shaped by animal nutrition experts, animal welfare experts. They weren't shaped by farmers. Is there a scientific backing to these rules under Prop 12? There is not. This this was drafted and promoted by the Humane Society of the United States. Um, They are not farmers, ranchers, veterinarians. so, so this is not something that, that was, was drafted with agriculture in mind. Uh, and and it's, it's kind of hard to fault the average voter for this. This, this is not passed the legislature, you know, with, with debates. Uh, this is done through a ballot initiative. And, you know, in, in California, you go in the ballot box, you have a bunch of various, you know, initiatives you're voting yes or no on, and you see a short little thing. Do you want to you know, ban animal cruelty? It's hard to fault someone for voting yes against that without really knowing the full ramifications of what that means. You know, the, the average voter doesn't know that the various benefits of different types of, you know, animal housing uh, systems, um, that's something that really is, is, is best, I think, handled by, handled by the farmers and, and their veterinarians. Um, so it's, it's, it's pretty an odd situation. I don't think folks really realize what was happening when this was voted on. Yeah, I think that's true. And so the law is currently paused while they're hammering out the rest of those regulations. In the meantime, this case will move forward. Travis, what does a timeline look like? Obviously, getting in front of the Supreme Court doesn't happen uh, overnight. How long do you think until they hear the case? And what deadlines or dates should our listeners be aware of as this moves forward? In the next few months, uh, we will proceed with the next stage of briefing. So we've already had one stage of briefing, which was trying to urge the court to take the case, explaining, you know, why this case is so, it, this raised national importance issues. Um, so we've, we've now thankfully passed that stage where the what's called the merit stage, which is where we, we, you know, debate back and forth on paper first, you know, whether or not this law is unconstitutional or not. Um, so that will happen over the summer. And then I would expect oral arguments probably in the October timeframe. That's when the court reopens again from their summer recess. And hopefully a decision, uh, by December or early 2023. And of course, we can't read these justices' minds. Obviously, this case will have to move forward. But Travis, as you look at the legal history, are there any precedents you think the Supreme Court should be taking a close look at as they're deciding whether or not to uh, to stay Prop 12? You know, it, it's, it's a, I've learned some fool's errand to try to predict the, uh, you know, where any individual case will go, especially when you have nine justices that can kind of formulate a, a variety of different kinds of holdings. Um, you know, we obviously believe that the case we put together is, is very strong, that a Supreme Court precedent does support that one state should not be permitted to, to extraterritorially control the regulations and the systems of another state. And we, and we think that we've put a strong case together that hopefully they will, they will take up and agree with. Absolutely. We will be watching this matter very, very closely. As Travis mentioned, this has ramifications far beyond just the housing of sows or egg-laying chickens. This rule, this law, Prop 12, could impact lots of areas over the, the broader American economy if it's allowed to stand. We've been talking to Travis Cushman. He's Senior Counsel of Public Policy with the American Farm Bureau Federation. Travis, thanks for jumping on and, and talking to us today about this case. Thank you so much. And folks, stick with us. When AOA returns, we'll be talking to Danielle Quist of the International Dairy Foods Association about that SEC climate disclosure rule that was rolled out last week. Stay with us here on AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. When it comes to your 2022 seed decisions, don't step over the line. Buy new, professionally produced seed from authorized seed companies and dealers. The Seed Innovation and Protection Alliance membership of 100 companies invest 15% of their sales into product research and development that can take 7 to 16 years, with total costs ranging from $1 million to $140 million for new genetics and or traits. SEPA thanks farmers for buying new seed that not only maximizes yield potential, but also funds the next great seed innovations for U.S. farmers. To anonymously report a seed infringement, call 1-844-SEED-TIP. 
Experts agree, using multiple herbicides with alternate modes of action increases your chances of beating resistant weeds. Tough 5EC is a selective contact herbicide for post-emergence control of broadleaf weeds, especially herbicide-resistant strains. Tough 5EC has a synergistic effect with HPPD inhibitors and enhances atrazine with fast results. Tough 5EC is in stock and ready to ship. Ask your local retailer about Tough 5EC or visit BelgiumUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Hi, I'm Smokey Bear, and I made an assistant to help you out, because only you can prevent wildfires. Hey, Assistant Smokey Bear, call me Papa Bear, because I'm grilling up dinner. <laughs> do you get it? Yes, good job. So, what should I do with all these coals? Don't just toss them out. Put them in a metal container, because those embers can start a wildfire. I understand. The stakes are high. Ha, 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 ha. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. Last week, the Securities and Exchange Commission rolled out really what was a long-awaited rule. They issued a 506-page rule really standardizing how climate risks would need to be disclosed by publicly traded companies. Now, this will have long-reaching and far-reaching implications really across all sectors of the American economy, particularly those companies who are publicly traded, and agriculture is no exception to that. One organization that has been watching this very closely is the International Dairy Foods Association, and joining us from that org is Danielle Quist. She is the Vice President of Regulatory Affairs and Council with IDFA, Danielle, thanks for joining us to talk about this SEC climate disclosure rule. Thank you for having me today. Let's start. Obviously, 506 pages. We're not going to be able to run through all the details here in the next several minutes. But Danielle, let's start. What was the SEC pushing for with this rule? What are their goals? Really, their goals are to standardize and expand on what publicly traded, the types of information that related to climate change and climate risks that publicly traded companies have to disclose to investors, to the SEC. So it's scope one and two, which are those types of emissions that are coming from a company's own operations. But importantly, and especially for agriculture, it also, for many, for many publicly disclosed companies, it will include scope three, and that's the value chain from the company, all the way from the farm up until when the product is sold. 
So as we think about these different scopes, obviously, for those of us who are outside the world of, of climate change regulations, it's kind of hard to wrap our head around. So scopes one and two, that's emissions created by the company itself, right? If I'm a steel smelter, it's what greenhouse gases are emitted as I'm smelting the ore. Scope three then would look at the miners' emissions, right, down as they're digging the iron ore out of the ground. Is that kind of how you'd relate it? That's exactly it. Scope three emissions are indirect emissions. So for a, say, for example, um, dairy foods, the farm, the dairy farmer is a key part of the scope three emission from the raw milk that then is taken to a processor and processed into dairy goodness, and then it may ultimately go to a brand. It may go be a private label through a retailer that could be a publicly traded company, or the processor itself um, could be the company. So it, it's, it, really, it really varies, but generally agriculture, dairy farmers are going to fall under scope three as the suppliers to the ultimate food product that is sold. So if this rule were, rule were to be finalized, Danielle, which companies would need to be releasing these climate change disclosures? It's only publicly traded companies in the U.S., so you have to be registered with the SEC. Um, and the scope three emissions, there's a little bit more flexibility for smaller publicly traded companies. At least there are in the proposal. We'll see what the final rule ultimately says. But this really goes beyond just what the SEC is proposing here because the, the European Union has already, has already finalized very similar rules. Uh, other um, U.S. global trading partners have similar disclosure requirements. So it's really becoming necessary for global competition to be able to track and to be able to measure and report climate, change, climate emissions, greenhouse gas emissions from the farm all the way to the fork. It goes all the way through the value chain. Danielle, one of the challenges I hear from folks looking at this law is they say, how do we measure these things? We've got a lot of models, but is there a scientific consensus on how we can accurately reflect what sort of greenhouse gas chemicals or, or pollutants, so to speak, are being released by these companies, particularly farther up the value chain? Well, at the farm level, that is something that is still that we're still working on. And one thing that this rule will help do is spur financial commitments to help farmers pay for the types of measuring and reporting that needs to be done. I know that USDA is becoming very involved with climate smart agriculture, but we need more, we need more data, we need more information, we need more funding so that farmers can do the type of measuring and reporting that needs to be done. And right now the SEC understands that. They're not expecting farmers to start reporting tomorrow. There is a phase-in period for, for publicly traded companies that do have to report scope three emissions, recognizing that the technology needs to catch up. And I think one of the reasons the SEC is pushing this is to try and help spur the technology with the with the publicly traded rule requirements. Okay, and it's interesting this is all happening now. Danielle, you mentioned the EU has similar rules. Multiple other trading partners we have have similar rules. This seems to tie in very closely with a phrase that's been talked about a lot in the financial media over the past several years, and that's ESG. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about what ESG means and how it's impacting the ag sector, particularly the dairy food sector that you work with? Sure. So ESG is a lovely acronym, and it means environment, social, and governance. And I look at ESG as kind of the next step up from sustainability. So when we talk about sustainability, we're generally talking about doing good things on the farm, implementing practices that improve environmental quality, and the journey that it takes to get there. ESG is a step up. It's broader in scope, so it does go beyond environment and includes social and human capital and how a company's management structure furthers those goals. But what's really critical about ESG is it requires the setting of standards, standards based on accounting practices and, and metrics that are globally recognized, and measuring the company's performance against that standard, and then measuring the, and understanding the risk that those ESG factors have on a company's business model and their financial performance. It's being used by creditors, by lenders, um, by governments and investors to really get a bigger, a bigger, a better understanding into how climate change is going to impact the future of a company. 
So that's a lot of this is coming from the investor community and from consumers as well. It is. And as we're thinking about this push towards ESG, it is shaping the, the money flow around the world as investors are looking to, to spend money or invest in places that meet these standards. And as I think about agriculture, our industry tends to get thrown under the bus as a polluter quite a bit. Does this push towards ESG, does this raise concerns about investors moving into the ag space? Or do you think we'll, we'll modernize enough and we'll be able to have these standards to, uh, to still stay competitive when they're focusing on ESG as an investing metric? Well, I mean, agriculture, dairy, dairy in particular, I mean, we have a lot of room for improvement on the farm. Um, and I think that as, these, as the metrics are set and farmers are able to, to measure and report, um, it'll show that there, there can be some significant reductions. Um, so there's something, some, some emissions are never going to go away, and that's just recognizing that that's, that's part, of, part of, of, of raising agricultural products. Um, but what, the farmers that are able to measure and report themselves are going to be more competitive. And there's a lot of questions about, you know, becoming more attractive to buyers, looking to reduce their scope three and the government programs that hopefully will help do that. But in the end, it, it's, it hopefully will be a positive for agriculture that we can get those resources and make, make improvements on the farm that are measurable and that can be reported up the value chain. That makes a lot of sense. Danielle, as you think about how dairy producers up and down the value chain might start to to plan for this move towards uh, this rule being in effect, what sort of additional monitoring should they be thinking about here in 2022? What are the key metrics that these publicly traded companies might be watching down the value chain? Well, we still need to see that. And I will say that for, for dairy producers to look to their co-ops, there are some co-ops that are already very much in the doing measurements and working with their farmers. Um, look to your customers. Uh, the publicly traded companies may have to go. There may be other companies in between the farmer and the publicly traded company. But your, I think what we're going to start seeing is customers um, starting to work more with their supply chain to make sure that there's a level of rigor and substantiation um, in, in, how these, in how emissions are measured on the farm. Because the publicly traded company, they have to be done to a certain standard as far as reasonableness and in good faith. So I, I think we'll see a lot more uh, coordination between farmers and their customers as they develop forms and processes for measuring and, and obtaining this type of information throughout the value chain. Indeed. Danielle, before we let you go, you, of course, at IDFA have been working on this. Where could could growers go for more information on this rule and how it would pertain to the dairy sector? Well, I know here at IDFA, we're trying to put as much information as we can out. We had a webinar PricewaterhouseCoopers and a law firm on Monday. Uh, we're still actually digging into the rule. Like you said, it's over 500 pages long. It's a beast. So, it is um, indeed, folks. We'll keep tracking this rule and hopefully we'll get Danielle on again as this thing gets finalized. Stay with us here for more AOA coming up. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Your diesels are your engines of prosperity, so they deserve the best treatment. And with FS Fuel and Lubricant, you'll give them the gold standard. Diesel X Gold High Performance Fuel plus Suprex Gold ESP Engine Oil. Formulated to work together, they'll keep your diesels running longer and stronger, from farming to construction to trucking. Visit FSGoldStandard.com or talk with your local FS Energy Specialist. FS, bringing you what's next. Every Tuesday, we're sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS, where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system. Join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business with than ever before. We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. 
Well, after two straight days of risk-off trade and sell-offs through the grain market, we are moving higher here this morning, led by the soy complex here, uh, up sharply in beans, meal, and bean oil, with cord and wheat futures moderately higher as well. Now, this week's sell-off did considerable chart damage, but headlines and their longer-term implications for the global balance sheet are providing the bottom line for market direction here today. Near term, the focus shifts to tomorrow's USDA quarterly grain stocks and planting intentions reports, the stocks report, uh, particularly known for their surprises that often defy logic, but they are what they are, and they keep traders on edge until they're passed, and it's really going to shape things here as we move forward. We continue to watch what's going on with peace talks and, and the lack thereof with Russia and Ukraine. That, of course, is Still driving our markets. Crude oil prices 3% higher or a little more than that now as we work into the morning trade. Crude oil up 402 a barrel, 108.26. On the livestock side, cattle and hogs mostly lower. We have the quarterly hogs and pigs report out this afternoon. Expectations for all hogs and pigs at 98.8% of last year. Kept for breeding estimated at 100.1% and marketing's at 98.7%. Numbers on the board right now, July quart up 17 and a half, 726. July beans up 25 and a quarter, 1649. July bean meal up 8, 10 a ton, 469.30. July bean oil up 106 points, 7093. July Chicago wheat up 12 and a half, 1021 and three quarters. July Kansas City wheat up 18, 1042 and a quarter. Spring wheat for July up 14 to three quarters, 1057 at three quarters. April hogs down 42. And 105.62, April feeder cattle down 80, 163.55. And April live cattle down 15, 140.75. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference bite by bite. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. It is another busy day in the markets. We've got the grains up big with the USDA reports coming out tomorrow, quarterly grain stocks and prospective plantings report, ongoing hostilities in the Ukraine, lots of things happening around the world that are impacting the world of commodities. Joining us to help make a little bit more sense of them is Arlen Suderman. He's the chief commodities economist with Stonex and Arlen looking ahead to tomorrow's reports. Quarterly grain stocks are coming out and boy, there is a wide range of analyst expectations for corn stocks. Where do you think this number is going to come out tomorrow? Well, you're exactly right on that, and and uh, I think that really comes down to what the trade thinks was the size of the crop and how aggressive have we been in feeding that crop. And there's a lot, large ver variation, or shall we say, in estimations on what we're going to do. Right now, as I look at the numbers, I have my stocks numbers. Um, oh, wait a minute. I pulled up the wrong file. Um my apologies for that. Let me see if I can get it. Um, but when we talk about calculating these stocks, as I'm looking for that number, it really comes down to um, what you think USDA is going to do for the feeds portion of that. That's not measured. That varies widely. 
And so we see tremendous amount of variation in that because it's simply production minus all the measure, measured usage for exports and for crush, for ethanol, et cetera, and for food use, and well, the rest must be feed. And you can get up to 500 million bushels of variation in there. We've seen some past reports. My estimation is it will be at 7.754 billion bushels. That would be up a little bit from the just under 7.7 .7 billion bushels that we were a year ago, but pretty similar overall. We've been consolidating kind of at this level, right around 1.4, 1.5 billion bushel carryout for the year. We've been holding around that level, so I don't see any major changes, surprises there. But when USDA has a surprise in their stocks numbers, it oftentimes defies logic. So the question is, is that because of, of um, calculation error, survey error? Uh, if you're off 1%, that can make a significant difference, and that's usually within the realm of survey error. Or are they miscalculating um, the size of the crop in the first place? USDA NAS tells me that that survey of the size of the crop is the one that they have the greatest amount of confidence in every year, but yet it seems like they're always changing it a year later. So how much confidence do they have in it? But that has a big impact then on what the stocks reports are each quarter. Given the fact that quarterly grain stocks can be a wild card, Arlen, and we've got so much volatility, is there a way that, that growers can manage the risk? Would this be a put situation? How, how do you, or do you just sit on your hands and let the report happen and then commence to trading once the numbers are known? What, what do you think is the best way to, to manage a report that can be this volatile? Yeah, it's not just a report. It's every headline that comes out these days, it seems like, gives us a big move. I mean, for example, we've been trading a, four, a 38 cent trading range in Chicago wheat today, and that's considered a mild day. We traded almost a dollar range yesterday, um, but these reports are on a quarterly basis are also known for the big market moving away. So, one of the things that you can do is what's called short dated options. Short dated options. Uh, give you protection for just a short period of time to get through the report, either a put or a call. Because they're short dated, they tend to have a lower cost because there's not a lot of time risk to the person selling you the option. It's like buying a fire insurance on your house for just uh, a matter of two weeks or something like that. That's going to cost you a lot less than an annual premium for fire insurance on your house. So that's one option that they can do um, that a lot of people are starting to take advantage of. That makes sense. Arlen, as you think about the soybeans, uh, quarterly grain stocks, there's a much tighter estimate from traders on what to expect from that soybean number. Is that because it's, it's just easier to quantify the, the total amount of soybeans left in storage? Well, when it comes to soybeans, we have primarily two uses, crush and exports and both of those are measured and so it really should come down to um, a very well-defined number the math should work out very tightly uh, but there are still surprises there and so USDH says well residual use has changed dramatically well what is residual use residual use is simply that uh, uh, that area of the balance sheet where they account for miscalculation of the size of the crop or for statistical error in their uh, survey methodology. There is no really thing such as residual use, although there are some very minor uses of soybeans. So it comes down there, in some months we'll have big negative numbers for residual use. Uh, so how does that happen? But that's the way USDA does things. So when there's differences in estimates for what soybean stocks are going to be in a quarterly report, it's usually because people have different opinions on what USDA's residual use is going to be for that quarter. Is it going to be positive? Is it going to be negative? And by how much? And what I do is I look at a kind of a 10-year average and look at the trends of recent USDA reports for the March report, what they, they do for residual use, and try to follow that trend to what USDA did. But because most of the use is measured, that tends to give you less variation in the soybean number. Arlen, as you mentioned, you look at the trends of past USDA March reports. What, what are the trends? Can we pick up anything meaningful from how USDA has handled this data in recent years? 
Well, as we look at uh, the numbers in the March report, usually the biggest focus is on the acreage numbers in the corn stocks report. That's where the biggest surprises come to be. And this year, it seems like we have most estimates. Well, there are a few estimates that are outside of these bounds. Most of the trade estimates are really around that 91 to 92 million acres of corn and 88 to 89 million acres of soybeans. And as I run the balance sheets for this coming year, those are really very minimum levels and we better have a, a trend yield or better in order to keep from running out in the year ahead. And it, with Ukraine now looking very iffy for being a, a significant exporter over the next 12 to 18 months, that's probably even insufficient for the corn side of things unless we get a big safrina corn crop in Brazil. So those are very minimum levels now the trade's expecting. USDA could have a surprise in there in those acreage numbers, but it better be something that those, you know, the estimate range that I told you are higher. Yes, indeed. Arlen, you mentioned that safrina crop down there in Brazil. We are getting close to, to pollination, to really seeing some uh, some direction with that crop. Do you have any uh, hints as to how that might shape up down there as of yet? Well, there are some dry spots right now, as there always are. You know, even in the Midwest each summer, there's always some spots that are dry, so you'll see some things on social media. Overall, the crop is looking pretty good. Um, the question is, as you said, um, as we get into April, that's when the bulk of the crop goes through that critical pollination stage. So that's also when the rainy season sometimes ends, and we've got to get the crop through pollination before the rainy season ends. We need to see the rainy season continue into the end of April or the 1st of May. Some of the weather models have it ending early this year. Some of it have it going on and providing adequate rains. We have seen a trend toward drier weather in some of the northeastern safrina corn growing areas. That may shave a little bit of production off, but right now we're looking at overall a decent crop, but we're watching the month of April very closely. That makes sense. As you think about bean shipments, Arlen, we've been talking a lot this time of year of beans moving out of Brazil as that harvest continues. Are we seeing Chinese purchases in particular come back to the U.S. as they grow concerned about what could be coming out of the country down there in Brazil? Well, we definitely are. It first started off with new crop purchases, and that made sense since new crop at the time was trading about a $2 discount uh, and still is to the nearby. So the expectation is if there's risk, it would be more upside risk to the uh, to the new crop contracts. But now they're buying more old crop as well, and we've seen a steady pickup in that. It's mostly for delivery this summer. If we look at the FOB bids at the ports in Brazil, they are more expensive than U.S. Gulf bids really from June on. And so if you look at what it costs to transport the freight and everything delivered to the port in China, now we're talking about over $23 for beans and China is still buying. And we're also seeing some encouraging signs in their hog herd as we look at the uh, hog futures in China for the deferred months. They are now giving some opportunity for them to hedge in some profits, and that should boost uh, the feeding needs that we have in the second half of this year as well. That is good news for American soybean producers. Arlen, while we've got you, there has been a lot of conversation about spring wheat acreage this coming year, given the high cost of nitrogen and the profitability of other crops. Do you have a sense on what to expect for spring wheat acres as we look at 2022 planting season? Yeah, we're looking for a modest decrease in spring wheat acres. And overall, uh, I'm looking for 11.28 million uh, acres that's down um, from 11.42 last year. There are others who are looking for an increase, and we just don't see it. too much competition from some of the alternative crops right now, even though the wheat prices overall have improved from where they were a month or two ago. Uh, we still don't see it. There is a lot to keep an eye on as this moves forward. Arlen, thank you for joining us and for getting us a little bit more prepared for tomorrow's big USDA report. I always appreciate your insight, folks. This is Arlen Suderman from Stonex. Thanks for joining us, Arlen. Thank you. And folks, stick around when AOA returns. We'll take a look at uh, some of Russia's most recent pronouncements, and we'll talk to Brian Schwartz of Cenex about getting our lubrication squared away before planting season gets started. Stay with us here on AOA.
Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. How many acres are you keeping an eye on? Another pair of eyes could be very helpful in protecting your ROI, especially ones that are highly trained. And that's what you'll get with an FS Crop Specialist. They can spot issues you might not even know you have using the latest technology, including thermal, drone, and NDVI imaging. Then they can get an early treatment plan started. Contact your local FS Crop Specialist to learn more about our crop scouting services. It's one more way FS is bringing you what's next. Soil, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Soil Ship Enterprise to explore soil life, to boldly grow where cover crops have never grown before. Farmer's Log, soil date 31655.4. We've come across some strange but incredibly helpful life forms. We didn't have to travel far to find them, but these organisms have proven invaluable on our trip through the solar system. They help feed us by nourishing and protecting our crops. They've built our soil structure to make it more resilient to the harsh weather we encounter. Our sensors indicate they're even helping us store carbon that plants take out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil. Guess you can say our living and life-giving soil is the best thing to cling on to. Um, sorry. <clears throat> That's soil fleet humor. <laughs> Visit your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today and learn more about the basics and benefits of soil health. This message brought to you by USDA and this radio station. I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it twice a day. I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it in the morning and before dinner. I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it, and share it with my doctor. Nearly one in two U.S. adults have high blood pressure. That's why it's important to self-monitor your blood pressure in four easy-to-remember steps. It starts with a monitor. Now that I know my blood pressure numbers, I talked with my doctor. We're getting those numbers down. Get it, slip it, cuff it, check it. Talk to doctor now and share it. Be next to talk to your doctor about your blood pressure numbers. Get down with your blood pressure. Self-monitoring is power. Learn more at manageyourbp.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the American Heart Association, and the American Medical Association. In partnership with the Office of Minority Health and Health Resources and Services Administration. 
Experts agree, using multiple herbicides with alternate modes of action increases your chances of beating resistant weeds. Tough 5EC is a selective contact herbicide for post-emergence control of broadleaf weeds, especially herbicide-resistant strains. Tough 5EC has a synergistic effect with HPPD inhibitors and enhances atrazine with fast results. Tough 5EC is in stock and ready to ship. Ask your local retailer about Tough 5EC or visit BelgiumUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, thanks for tuning in to AOA today. We're going to be talking with our friends from Senex here in just a little bit, getting geared up for keeping everything lubricated as planting season gets close. But before we do that, I wanted to talk about one of the things that might be moving the markets later on this year. We've been trying to identify places where we could have some excitement if the status quo were to change. And the place that still might happen ahead is Europe with natural gas. Obviously, the discussion has been going on for the past several weeks. The Europeans want to wean themselves off Russian gas. The Russians view their European customers as unfriendly. Recently, Russia, in fact, last week, Russia demanded that any payment for natural gas would have to be in rubles. The Europeans disputed that. They said, no, our contract is signed for these payments to be made in euros. This conversation is ongoing, and the fear is growing that Moscow could turn off gas supplies to the rest of Europe. So that's one side. And the commentators right now believe that's not very likely, that we would see Moscow just shut the taps off to their European neighbors. But keep in mind, two months ago, the, the smart money was on Europe, or Russia's bluffing here, and they're not going to be moving into the Ukraine. So let's keep an eye on this, because as our industry knows, if natural gas prices skyrocket, and if they were to skyrocket additionally in Europe, we'll see their nitrogen production fall, and uh, we could certainly see some additional longer-term effects stick around as a part of this. Another interesting wrinkle, just something to keep an eye on, the Kremlin has also said yesterday that they believe payments in rubles are a good idea for other commodities as well. I don't know if they're looking to export around the sanctions or countries that perhaps aren't abiding by the sanctions, but it seems as though Vladimir Putin is working to raise his stockpiles of rubles there in the Russian country. So we'll continue to be watching this story, no doubt, as we talk crude oil, as we talk fertilizer, the standoff amongst natural gas issues in Europe Boy, this is one of those things that is going to have a long tail, folks, and we'll be sure to keep bringing you up to speed about what's happening with it here on AOA. Now, before we go for the day, it, it is time to check in with our friends at Senex and joining me today, Brian Schwartz, the district manager for lubricants at Senex for Nebraska and Colorado. We're getting geared up for planting time. Brian, how can equipment preparation save time during the planting season? Well, we know the planting season's not here yet, but it is right around the corner. So, you know, it's just really important to get get into the shop and start that preventative maintenance now to save you some downtime uh, later on. And really choosing the right greases and lubricants is a big part of that. You really only get one chance at picking your brand and the brand you pick should be a quality brand. It certainly should. Brian, why does getting that early season maintenance out of the way matter? Well, you just want to get ahead of going in the field. You know, just because your equipment was working when you parked it last fall doesn't mean it's still that way this spring. So you want to perform that maintenance and use that downtime right now to, to make sure you pull in and ensure that your equipment's ready for the game and, and uh, ready to go when the time comes. Well, that time is getting closer. Brian, what's the first thing farmers should do to get their equipment ready for spring? You know, uh, the first thing most guys do, I see them pull the tractors in and get the engine oil changed. And that's always a great place to start. Senex uh, has a great line of diesel engine oils, uh, whether it be a conventional oil or if you are looking for the added benefits of synthetics, we have that as well. Uh, another thing I can't really stress enough, Mike, is using a quality grease. A lot of guys have used the same grease that their dad has used or their grandpa's used. But their dad and their grandpa planted with a four and eight row planter. We've upgraded our equipment. We really need to make sure we upgrade our grease along with it. 
and use a high-performance grease like a Cenex Maxtron EP or our Blue Guard. Well, Brian, how can farmers ensure they're getting the best fluids for the job? You really want to make sure, Mike, that you're using a premium lubricant. The money that you invest in that lubricant can save you in the long run by helping you get the most out of your oil and your equipment. You possibly maybe want to take a look at synthetics if you want to try and extend your drain on your engine oil or your transmission fluid. That's really the key to extending out that oil change. And that's going to help keep you in the field and out of the shop. So you want to check out Cenex branded premium synthetic diesel engine oils like Cenex Maxtron EnviroEdge or our Maxtron DEO. Uh, they're both formulated with EnduroViz polymer technology, which is an industry leading polymer. And they're really shear stable. And that's what's going to give you that long life. We also include a really balanced additive package to improve anti-wear protection. And that's going to help you extend the life of your engine. But eventually, all that engine oil life comes to an end. Brian, talk to me about used oil analysis. Is that something farmers should be doing? That's definitely something farmers should be doing, Mike. I'm an old farm boy myself and a diesel mechanic. That oil does everything inside your machine. And by taking a look at lube scan analysis, you can learn an awful lot about what's going on under the hood. I like to tell guys it's the only way you can look inside your engine without taking the pan off. You can purchase a Cenex lube scan at any of your local dealers. And it's really simple to do. You just collect a small sample along with your scheduled maintenance, send it into our third-party testing facility. It's very simple. There's a mailing envelope already ready to go for you with postage paid. And that lab is going to evaluate your results and send you a, a really comprehensive report on the health of your equipment. Brian, what else should folks consider before they get out there and hit the field this planting season? Well, like we've already discussed, Mike, prevent unexpected downtime by doing your maintenance now. Use quality synthetic lubricants. It's a small part of an input in an operation, and you just want to really make sure that the, what you are using is a quality product. Cenex has a great lookup tool. Cenex.com, you can go to the equipment lookup tool and find the product that's right for your equipment. Otherwise, you can always reach out to your local Cenex dealer to learn more. Folks, that's Brian Schwartz. He's the district manager for lubricants at Cenex for Nebraska and Colorado. Brian, thanks for talking to us today. Thank you, Mike. And I keep saying planting season is almost upon us, but in fact, for several growers across the country, it's already here. Texas ahead of average on getting their corn in the ground, likewise with Kansas, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Mississippi also seeing some corn in the ground, though those three states are running a little bit below average. Folks, thanks for tuning in today to AOA. Tune in tomorrow. We're seeing some rail transportation issues develop, and Mike Seifert, the director of the National Grain and Feed Association, will be along to talk to us about just how those are impacting their customers in the world of agriculture. And then on Friday, I'm excited. We're talking to BJ Johnson, founder and creator of Clear Flame Engines, the technology that's basically letting diesel engines run on corn ethanol. Tune in throughout this week to AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Okay, gotta be late. Gotta go, gotta go. Where'd I put... Ah, wallet. Check. And... Oh, phone. Uh, check. Keys. Check. Lunch. Check. Checking for the things you need doesn't take long. But what about checking for your safety? Right now, one in every five vehicles on the road has an open safety recall. But it only takes seconds to check for open recalls on your car at checktoprotect.org. All you need is your vehicle identification number or license plate number. Your automaker may not have the right information to notify you about recalls by mail, especially if you recently moved or drive an older or used car. Checktoprotect.org is the quick, easy way to find out if your vehicle has an open safety recall and find the closest dealer who can make the repair for free. Oh, oh, laptop. Check. Before you go, take a minute. Visit Checktoprotect.org. Check to Protect is a program of the National Safety Council.